Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from Let Your Kingdom Come. We've been tracing the history of the kingdom of God through the entire Old Testament, the entire New Testament, and now we've come into church history, and we're tracing it well into almost the dark ages of the church, the medieval ages, some want to call it. I still call it dark because the word of God was being suppressed. Most evangelicals will agree on that, but not all Christians will agree that one of the things that was being suppressed was the premillennial reign of Christ. The next years after the ones we talked about last time with Augustine and Origen gave the church Cyril of Alexandria who led Christians in pillaging Alexandria's Jewish quarter. Many died. They are murderers of the Lord, was his justification. They are alienated from the hope of the fathers. The sixth century's Pope Gregory I promoted Augustinian values. Various canon laws were formed addressing Jewish matters. There were to be separate Jewish communities with more and more restrictions arriving through the centuries. Thus, the medieval church arrived full of hatred for Israel. A.T. Robertson says that medieval theocracy created by replacement theology eclipsed millenarianism, the whole millennial idea. A Christian empire was now being formed where the kingdom of God is an omnipotent church. Oh, how wrong could they be? Origen and Augustine and many of like mind had their way in the ever-evolving descriptions of the kingdom until that description, like many other church teachings, was buried in the vast wasteland we call the Dark Ages. Dark because the light of God's word was hidden by priest and pope and scholar. The church was entering its serious apostasy, and the millennial question was put on hold. Most were not concerned about it anyway. What about the reformers? We're skipping a lot of years here, but I've given you how the Roman Catholic system kind of fell into line for many years. But what about the Reformation? Did they finally, did they get to see it again right away? I'm not going to visit each of the godly men who dared to come out of or be put out of the Church of Rome. We love them all. We honor them all. Names like Wycliffe, Tyndale, Huss, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli. Where would we be without them? But the Reformers shared one very difficult circumstance. They all had the same mother. Mother Church was a cruel mom and a false mom, and a mother whose beliefs were seemingly set in stone. The heroes of the faith came as far from her as they dared, but they did not come far enough, in my opinion. As with the church fathers, one can find a variety of competing beliefs among the reformers. They struggled over the communion service, the form and reason for baptism. They were simply not in agreement with each other on a number of issues. Some practices and beliefs were simply taken from Rome as a given. To this day, reformed can mean a lot of different things. And the reformed churches will often admit that they themselves are in need of reforming. 
One of the teachings that came out of Rome with those leaving her was the amillennial doctrine that went back to Augustine. It was not contested for some time. But eventually men arose who discovered something that hadn't been noticed for a long time, the number 1,000. Eventually, the light of a premillennial coming of Christ, followed by the kingdom, promised by all the prophets, began to shine again in the church. Note these rays of light sprinkled over the centuries. Let's talk about, in the A.D. 1500s, the kingdom and John Calvin. John Calvin? Well, John Calvin likes to was talking once about allegory, which is a necessary element for our millennial views. He says the error of allegory has been the source of many evils. Not only did it open the way for adulteration of the natural meaning of Scripture, but also set up boldness in allegorizing as the chief exegetical virtue. Then there's the Geneva, Geneva Bible, which was partly a product of Calvin. The blindness of the Jews is neither so universal that the Lord has no elect in that nation, neither will it be continual, for there will be a time in which they also will effectually embrace that which they now so stubbornly and for the most part reject and refuse. John Calvin. I won't say he was a premillennial dispensationalist, but he did see a little of what we're talking about here. We go into the 1600s, the 1700s, the kingdom and the Puritans. Richard Sibbs, 1635, when the fullness of the Gentiles is come in, then comes the conversion of the Jews. Why may we not expect it? They were the people of God. Samuel Rutherford, 1661, oh, to see the sight next to Christ coming in the clouds, the most joyful, oh, day. O oh, longed-for and lovely day, O oh, dawn, O oh, sweet Jesus, let me see that sight which will be as life from the dead, thee and thy ancient people in mutual embraces. John Owen, 1683, speaking before the House of Commons, 1649, talked of the bringing home, he died in 1683, excuse me, talked of the bringing home of God's ancient people, the Jews to be one fold with the fullness of the Gentiles. Matthew Henry, nonconformist author and minister, 1714, that though for the present time the Jews are cast off, yet the rejection is not final. They are not cast off forever. Cotton Mather in the New England, he was a New England Puritan, 1728 he died. I lay before the Lord, I lift up my eyes for the conversion of the Jewish nation. You see, many had not written it off as many had. God has not written it off either. Hey, you get Israel right, you'll get your eschatology right. These men were on the way. The light was beginning to shine. Let's go to A.D. 1700s. The kingdom and Isaac Watts. 1719, Isaac Watts writes, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. To him shall endless prayer be made and praises throng to crown his head. 
His name, like sweet perfume, shall rise with every morning sacrifice. People and realms of every tongue dwell on his love with sweetest song, and infant voices shall proclaim their early blessings on his name. Blessings abound where'er he reigns. The prisoners leap to lose their chains. The weary find eternal rest, and all who suffer want are blessed. Let every creature rise and bring the highest honors to our King. Angels descend with songs again, and earth repeat the loud Amen. He could see it. He could see it. In 1719, he could see it. And then the kingdom and some pastors that you might have heard of, John Gill, an English Baptist pastor, a commentator who died in 1771. He says, the space of a thousand years in Revelation is to be taken definitely for just this number of years, exactly as appears from having the article prefixed to them, the thousand years, and are called afterwards no less than four times. Then there's Jonathan Edwards, the Congregationalist pastor. Everybody knows Jonathan Edwards. Died in 1758. Though he believed that the church was the new Israel, I'm sorry to say, he said, The Jews and all their dispersions shall cast away their old infidelity and shall have their hearts wonderfully changed and hate themselves for their past unbelief and obstinacy. It's very close to the truth right there. We're in the 1800s now. There's more pastors, the kingdom, and more pastors. How about Adolf Safir? You don't know that name, right? He was a Hungarian Jewish convert to Christianity and a Jewish Presbyterian missionary who died in 1891. He says, Is not such a consummation of history a necessary postulate of our thought? Would we not expect such a transition period? between the present and the ultimate everlasting condition? Is earth simply a failure, abandoned by God to the power of the enemy, the scene of divine judgment, and not the scene of the vindication and triumph of righteousness? Is not Jesus the Son of Man, the Christ who shall reign on earth? We believe that he will come, and with him the kingdom, and with the kingdom the fulfillment of the prayer, thy will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. Oh, yeah. yeah. He saw it. He got it. He got it. G. V. Leckler, German Lutheran theologian who died in 1888. He says, as to the fact itself, the coming of the kingdom, and as to Israel's privilege with respect to the latter, they, and that's the disciples of Acts 1, entertain no doubt. And the Lord was so far from disapproving of such an expectation that he rather confirmed it by declaring that the Father had fixed the times. Now, we know that neither a period nor an epoch can be affirmed concerning an event which is only imaginary. Those interpreters have altogether mistaken the sense who maintain that Jesus here entirely rejects the conceptions entertained by his apostles respecting the Messianic kingdom. For this is by no means the case. He did not deny that either their expectation on earth of his glorious kingdom in its reality, or their hope of the glorious future which that kingdom opened to the people of Israel was well-founded. He simply subdued their eager curiosity respecting the time. Then there's Samuel Andrews, a theologian, 
pastor of Catholic Apostolic Church in Hartford, Connecticut, 1906. He says, Thus there is, during the kingdom period, a well-ordered system of government embracing the whole earth, administered by Christ, through those whom he appoints, a system adapted to meet the needs of all its inhabitants in all their varied conditions and degrees of intellectual development. And Charles Spurgeon, 1894 he died, a Baptist minister, I think you know the name. He says, to make the wonder of the resurrection extraordinary beyond conception, they will rise at once, or perhaps in two great divisions. There is a passage, Revelation 20, verse 5, which apparently teaches us that between the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked, there will be an interval of a thousand years. Now, many think that the passage intends a spiritual resurrection, but I am unable to think so. Assuredly, the words must have a literal meaning. Hear them, judge for yourself. But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Spurgeon is quoted elsewhere in a post-millennial vein. But this revelation text could not be denied by the great preacher. Then there's Horatius Bonar, Scottish churchman, poet, died 1889. Why should not the temple, the worship, the rites, the sacrifices be allowed to point to the Lamb that was slain in the millennial age, if such be the purpose of the Father? And if God should have yet a wider circle of truth to open up to us out of his word concerning his Son, why should he not construct a new apparatus for the illustration of that truth? There's a man who believed in Ezekiel, literally. I love it. Philip Schaff, a historian, died 1893, says the most striking point in the eschatology of the anti-Nicene age is the prominent millenarianism, that is, the belief of a visible reign of Christ in glory on earth with the risen saints for a thousand years before the general resurrection and the judgment. It is the widely held opinion of distinguished teachers such as Barnabas, Papias, Justin, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Methodius, Lactantius, etc. The very names I have already quoted for you. We're in the A.D. 1900s now. There seems to be no end to this, right? Well, there is. There will be an end to this eventually. <clears throat> well, but I can't talk about that now. I just realized I've come to the, the final division that I made here earlier to let me to remind me to stop so I don't go too far. We will do this one more time. Please come back one more time as we wrap it all up. Talk about pastors and authors who line up believing today in this pre-millennial reign of Christ. And I do hope that you will join me at that time. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. And Lord willing, we do get to talk again real soon. Bye-bye.